the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So uh, there's a name that you may have heard about three or four years ago. His name is Dan Price, and he owns a company up in Seattle called Gravity Payments. And they, he, along with his brother, founded the company back in 2004, right as the whole credit card processing thing was starting to catch fire, and sure enough, it did. And within just a few years, they had over 100 employees. Both he and his brother were making upwards of $1.1 million as a salary annually. And then four years ago, Dan invites the whole staff into a staff meeting one morning to make an announcement. And they're all going, oh, what is this about? And Dan Price says, going forward and after a process of three years, the minimum wage to work in this company will become $70,000. Baseline. Nobody in the company, no matter what your experience, what your education is, what your tenure in the company, the minimum wage you will make is $70,000. And the only way that that sort of income increase for everybody in the company will work is that Dan Price is going to take a pay cut. He made $1.1 million annually, but as of that day forward, he was going to take a salary of $70,000. Now, you can imagine the moment in the staff meeting. Everybody's checking their watches going, is it April 1st? <laughs> and you might say everybody's flipping at this point. Some people are flipping because they know that they were making at most forty grand, and now they're making seventy Within three years, boom. And then there are other people that are flipping out. Flipping out so much that they're leaving the company, saying, unfair, unjust. We know more. We do more. We're better skilled at this. And now you're paying everybody the same base wage. They're flipping out. And then there are some people who was pretty much want to flip him off, including his brother, who sues him. Sues him saying, did we talk about this? I don't remember the memo. You can expect and anticipate the media firestorm that takes off. There are some people that are cherishing him as a new wave of new capitalism. That's how you do stuff. And there are others who are thinking, you're an idiot. You have just torpedoed your company into uh, ignominy from every point forward. And it's a one-off and all of that. So you're a fool. Four years later, the company still exists. Four years later, everybody's making a baseline of $70,000. Four years later... Dan Price is making a salary of $70,000, whereas five years ago it was $1.1 million. And his brother, he dropped the suit, and then Dan buys his brother out. So he now owns the whole company. Now look, I am not telling you that story as an advocacy of a whole new way of entrepreneurship, all right? That's outside my field. But I do tell you it's for its shock value, and, and I'm betting some of you are shocked. Because it certainly cuts across the grain of how most people think about business, how most people think about entrepreneurship, and it certainly cuts across the grain about how you think about profits and, and making all your shareholders, you know, happy with how things are going and your price earnings ratio and all that. But I tell you that story for its shock value because the choice that Dan Price makes is based upon certain premises that very few people and very few businesses take into account. And I tell you that story because in some ways it orients you to the kind of shock that you're going to hear in a story that Jesus told in one of his parables. And for some of the same reasons. 
We're in a series, a short series this summer on the parables. We're listening to Jesus' stories that would confront and challenge and encourage and also mystify. And this morning, we're going to listen tell him a story that you might say is loosely centered around the idea of labor. The God for whom we labor and how we're to think of that labor for God. The God for whom we labor and how we're to think of the nature of that labor. Believe me, it will shock you. And the question is, why are you shocked? And the answer is because you believe certain things about him and about the labor that Jesus is out to challenge. So if you're able to stand, let's listen to him tell a story in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I'll give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one's hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last, up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This is the wild word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. All right, this is a parable that should appeal to no matter where you are on the ideological spectrum. This master in this parable is a good conservative, and then he likes to put as many people to work as he can. He's a good liberal, and then he likes to make sure everybody gets equal pay. And he's a good libertarian in that he doesn't like telling people how to run his business. So all of you should find something that you might like. We can all be friends, as a matter of fact, in this parable, okay? Am I right? Run with it, okay? Look, Jesus is in the parable not offering a theory of labor. That's not his gig. What he is out to do here is actually to respond to something. He's out to respond to a comment that's just come from the apostle Peter. 
when you read scripture, you should always kind of, whatever passage you're looking at, you should always look before and after to see maybe there's something that just happened or is about to happen that kind of helps you understand what's going on in this passage. Sure enough, this parable is not just Jesus telling a story in a vacuum. He's actually out to say something to Peter and the disciples because of something that's just happened that they've witnessed. We won't, you can turn to Matthew 19 if you want, but you probably know the story already. It's that story in Matthew 19 of that dude we know as the rich young ruler comes to Jesus saying, hey, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And the uh, rich young ruler says, all right, which ones? And Jesus starts rattling off several from the Ten Commandments. And the rich young ruler says, been there, done that, got a toga. Says it, did it, got it, did all of that, right? Did all that, I'm fine. And Jesus says, you know, sorry, left one thing out. Sell everything you got, give it to the poor, follow me. Silence. Dude turns around, walks away, and it says he was saddened because he had many possessions. Because that was, to him, a bridge too far. And Jesus sees him walking away, and the disciples see him walking away going, ah! And Jesus turns to his disciples and said, okay, here's the idea. It is really hard for someone who is so committed to the wealth of this world to instead commit themselves to the wealth of the kingdom that will not end. It's just hard. At which Peter pipes up. And in so many words says, and what about us? And so he says there in Matthew 19, 27, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus, what you got? You see all we give up? What's, what's the gravy going to be like? And Jesus says, oh, Peter, when it all comes down, when I set everything right and I ascend my throne, you'll rule with me. You will. And when it comes to all that you've sacrificed, know this. Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. In other words, whatever you may sacrifice in order to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, whatever you sacrifice to love your neighbor as yourself, whatever you sacrifice in order to make fishers of men, what you sacrifice will not be a waste. You will always have what you gave to love. And at this point, Jesus sees Peter's wheels turning. Because it's at this point that Jesus needs to make sure that Peter understands precisely the labor for which he is involved. And so he tells a story. And that story begins rather unremarkably. It's about a master of a vineyard. He's got land. Vineyards don't take care of themselves. You got to tend them. You got to prune them. You got to cultivate them. It requires laborers. It's not a one-man gig. You got to go out. So he needs people. And in the background of this whole parable, which is not the main point of the parable, but something that helps you understand it, Jesus is out to tell us this. The master's like the Lord. And life in God, life with God, is fundamentally a life for God in his work. Life in God, life with God, is a life for God about his business. In other words, to live in God and in, in, by faith in God is not simply to only think thoughts about him. 
It is not only to gather in his name. It is not only to congratulate one another that we know each other or that we know him. Do you know God? Me too. What a coincidence. Life in God, life with God, is a life for God according to his purposes. That's, that's sort of the, the background idea here in the passage. And yet, inasmuch as we might say that it is God for whom we labor, this God is not to be thought of like a boss. Not like some sort of uh, CEO in a heavenly boardroom that is out to exact as much labor as he can from his minions that never see his face. This God, this master for whom we labor, has actually something greater in mind than even the work to which he invites them. What is of greater interest to this master is the laborers. The laborers are more in his heart than even the work to which he calls them. And the reason I deduce that from the parable is that you have to see what does the master do? He gets up early, and the early risers are there. The early bird is out to get their worm, and he says, hey, I got a field, I got a vineyard, I need somebody to work it. You in? And they say, we're in. He goes, good, because at the end of the day, there's a denarius in it for you. Now, denarius is not a lot of money. It's not going to buy a meal at 121 Main, but it's not chump change either. And so it's a good day. You end up with the denarius at the end of the day, that's a good day. You in? Yeah, we're in. Shake, head to the field. Great. So they go. So it's working. So he's got what he needs. Oh, wait a minute. Master's not done. He comes back three hours later, 9 o'clock. Hey, you guys standing around, you need work? Yeah, we need work. Tell you what, I'll do right by you. Come to my field. Come work. Okay, we're in. Bam. He does that at 9. He comes back at noon. He comes back at 3. He even comes back at 5 p.m., one hour before quitting time, saying, why are you just standing here doing nothing? Why are you standing idly by? And, and make sure you understand those words really carefully. Twice you hear in the parable, the, the, Jesus tell the parable of those who are standing idle in the marketplace. That's not a dig. That's not a shame on you kind of thing. It's a, oh man, why are, you, why are you waiting for something to do? I have labor for you. You need labor. Come, come into my field of labor. He just keeps coming back and forth and he doesn't care who will come? He just says, do you want work? I got work for you. Because he has an even greater interest in the well-being of those who need labor as he is in the labor to which he's inviting them. This is no ordinary boss. And so they come. And by this point, you can imagine that Peter is hearing this parable and thinking to himself and nodding, yeah, 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 okay, I got it, yeah, got it, sure, got it. I see where you're going, Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is here, you say, and if you're saying that the kingdom of heaven is here and you're inviting us into this work, and so what it means is that we, we have to learn in all manifold different ways how to love the Lord our God and how to love our neighbor as ourselves, and go out spreading the news of the kingdom. I got that part, and you're also saying that no matter what we sacrifice unto that end, it will not be a waste. It will not be lost to us. Check. And then Jesus kind of does the mic drop moment. Because what happens then is what nobody expects. In the parable, what happens is it's time for quitting. 6 p.m. rolls around, whistle blows. Master says, foreman, pay him up. Set out the table. And make sure that you pay those who showed up last first so that everybody can see what you get paid. So the last ones show up first. And you got to think that 
that sometime during the day, everybody rubbed elbows, the guys that showed up at 6 a.m. and the guys that showed up at 5 p.m., all talking about the 6 a.m. guys going, yeah, he told us he was going to pay us a denarius. And the 5 p.m. guys are going, man, I, I wonder if I'm going to get jacked. They show up. They get to the table. The foreman's there to pay him up. And the guys who already have 5 o'clock shadow before they even clock in get a denarius. And maybe it looked something like what Eugene Bernand imagines from the moment. Two guys that are going, wait a minute, that's a whole denarius. We worked an hour. Maybe this is a mistake. And when they hear it's not a mistake, you got to think that they're thinking there's this, some sort of feeling of maybe both joy and disbelief. Are, is he serious? He's paying us the same. And then the guys that were there at 6 come to the table. And they hear that everybody's being paid the same wage. And they assumed that they were going to be prorated, that they're going to get more. If, if, the, if the guys had put in an hour, get a denarius, then surely we'll get 10 times that, right? They come to the table and they get a denarius. And they probably look something like this. Arms out, brow furrowed, eyes fixed. What? We worked all day. Those guys barely broke a sweat. I've got a sunburn and my back hurts. And you're giving me the same wage? It's not fair. And even in the words of the parable, you have treated them equal to us. The goes that showed up at 5 p.m., their joy and disbelief is matched by the anger, the envy, the resentment at what they feel is an unequal, unjust way. And in that moment, you wonder, yeah, isn't that kind of unfair? Uh, don't we all identify at some level with where they're coming from? Haven't we been in a situation where it seems like, wait a minute, why am I all getting paid the same stuff? There were people in Dan Price's company, as I said at the beginning, who jumped ship. They said, this is unfair. We have more experience. We have more tenure. We have more skill. And yet you're not paying us appreciably. Dan Price's policy essentially mimics whatever this master said to the guy that's upset. Both the master and Dan Price by that policy are essentially saying this, look, it's my company. I can set the terms as I please. And you know what? You can't accuse me of doing a bait and switch. I have taken nothing from you. I have broken my promise not in the least. I said I would pay you this, and that is what I'm paying you. You agreed to it. We were on the same page. Full disclosure. Oh, transparency. And guess what? You know what? You know what it takes me to be able to pay everybody the same? Generosity. And in Dan Price's case, he had to take a $900,000 pay cut for everybody to make the same. So are you really going to give me the stink eye for my generosity? In fact, in the original Greek, stink eye, it's there. No, 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 stop laughing. It's true. In the original Greek, there in the last, next to last verse, it says, Oh, do you have an evil eye because I am being good? Literally. Are you giving me the stink eye for being generous? That's the argument. 
what the parable has told us is that, yes, life in God, life with God is a life for God according to his purposes, but that God has an even greater interest in the laborers that he employs, if you will, more so than even the work to which he invites them. But the main thrust of the parable is actually a little bit of a warning. That when it comes to you and I and any disciple of thinking about what it means to labor in God's field, whatever that might be, whether it's public or private, whether it's illustrious or unheralded, there is a subtle, sinister little inclination in us all that we will be tempted with. And if you want to kind of see a metaphor for what you hear in the disgruntled laborers, um, here's a very brief snip of looking at a, a little girl on the first day she gets to hold her little baby brother. Check this out. You want to say stink eye? What do you think, Gav? What do you think, sweetie? Can you give him a kiss? Give him a kiss? Can you give him a kiss? Kiss on the, kiss on the head right there. You want to give him a kiss, sweetie? Yeah, yeah, how about no? How about, was that be okay? Is no okay? She, she's looking at the little brother going, um, I had to work with these amateur parents. They couldn't wipe a butt anymore than they could wipe a nose. They did everything wrong, and now you come, and they're all seasoned and prepared, and no, I'm not happy. I'm not happy at all. That's a metaphor for what's working, or what you see on the outside of somebody who feels like they're getting shafted. But let me show you an even deeper and even more insidious metaphor for what's going on on the inside of a person that's wrestling with what's happening there. Um, feast your eyes on uh, Manduka Kinque Maculata. This my wife found in the garden this week, otherwise known as the tomato hornworm. And um, before you think that that is sort of a, a decorative thing that he's got on his back, that's actually wasp larvae. The wasp has come along and laid eggs in, the, in the, uh, the skin of the hornworm. And at the time they, this is what my son helps me with. If it weren't for uh, Furman Angel and YouTube and my son this week, I'd have no idea. But, but, the, but when the wasp lays the eggs in the back of the hornworm, it injects it with a virus that makes, that persuades the hornworm that those things are friendly and they ought to be protected. And what happens is they'll gestate and when they emerge from their cocoons, they will eat the organs of the hornworm on their way out. And, well, they met the business end of the larvae, and that's the end of the hornworm. Isn't it sinister? If you want to see the circle of life, here it is right there. You can come up later and check. Kids, you're going to love it. It's right there. It writhes. It's really great. Um, yeah. Scary, right? It's a circle of life thing. But here's, here's why I bring it up. When it comes to envy and resentment of what you think you deserve better, it's, it's actually something that you think is coming from the outside, but it's actually something inside of you that it will eat you from the inside out. It will consume you. You will lay blame everywhere you can, but it's not a function of what's come from the outside. It's what is in seed form in us all. And Jesus is warning us, especially when it comes to any labor we have for the Lord, that there is something resident in which each one of us, in which it's just like that. We will actually defend ourselves into thinking that we are right in the same way that that hornworm is actually persuaded to defend this thing that will eat him from the inside out. It is killing that which he defends. 
that, is, that which he defends is killing him. There is a thing in us all, and it is a sinister thing, and it is a thing we all have to contend with. And that is why, if you're wondering, why did I have Beth read for you the excerpt from Jonah chapter 3? Uh, you know that story, right? Jonah is commissioned to go to Tarshish to go preach to Nineveh, rather to Nineveh, and he says, forget it, I'm not doing that. And then finally he has this come to Jesus moment inside of a fish. And then he sets off and he goes to Nineveh and he's told to go warn them. Hey, tell the Ninevites if they don't change, it's going to be bad. You should tell them. And so, you know, Jonah goes and he kind of says, hey, um, you should stop. And they go, you know, you're right. And they repent and they turn away. And, and Jonah's like, What? You relent of your anger to them just because I said to them, stop? Not fair. You know what we've been through, Lord? You know what I've been through? And all I have to do in here and just say, hey, hey, cut it out. And you relent and you treat them like you treat Israel? Fair? Yeah. That's just writ large what you see here in the parable. It's what you kind of hear very subtly again in the mouth of Peter at the end of John's gospel in John chapter 21. John and Peter, they're, they're, they're kind of uh, in their postprandial enjoyment of that fish dinner, fish breakfast that Jesus has baked for them, cooked for them. And uh, Jesus says to Peter, you know what? Someday you're going to be led in a direction you don't want to go, which is anticipating Peter's death out of faithfulness. And Peter looks at Jesus, and then Peter looks at John, and then Peter kind of asks Jesus, well, what about, th- what about this one? What about John? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus says back to Peter, if it's my will that he, John, remain until I come, what's that to you? Just follow me. Stop staring at what you think is the disparity or the incongruity between our respective experiences. You're cut it out. Just follow me. And for those who are listening, including the, 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 the disciples here, all of whom are our Jews, look, the way they would have applied this parable is that it would be really hard for a lot of Pharisees to look at the way Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and to think that he has as much regard for them as he does for the Pharisees. And yet that's the case. Jesus is saying, I'm, I got a different, there's a different business model on play here. And especially when the Gentiles they hear a rumor of are part of his plan too. What? We've suffered for you we died in the wilderness for you. And you're going to let the Gentiles who are at our throats in? Yeah, pretty much. Look, that's where you see this little envy, resentment kind of thing that wells up in us in Scripture. But come on. You don't have to look far to know where it infects us. You know, you know, you know where this plays, this plays out? Um, if you're a parent, sometimes. Um, there are moments where you will think about your raising a child, and then you'll go on Facebook, because that's where you can always get the best information possible. And you will see, you, you, you will have busted your hump, uh, so you would think, or, or has, it, has, it, has it been to uh, uh, show your children mercy and kindness and generosity and hopefully to show them Jesus and all of that. And it's like, doesn't seem to be working. Like, the formula's not working, right? And then you see others where it feels like they're just being effortless in their effort and the kids are just sort of singing hymns all the time. And you go, Really? Really? And we laugh about it, but there's a certain part of you that's going, I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. Parents struggle with it. You know who else struggles with it? Pastors. (gasps) I mean, nobody we know, but. You go to the leadership conferences, you read all the books, you hear about the gimmicks, you try the things, and some things work, and a lot of things don't, and then you look around at the young whippersnapper that comes in, and it's kind of like they have the Midas touch, and everything they go, it's, People flock, and 7,000 people are showing up every week, and you go, yeah, 
It's all a joke. It'll never last. But we do that. I do that. I'm sorry. We do that. I deserve better. I deserve more. And um, so it, it's affecting parents. It affects pastors. Uh, one other group. It affects uh, people. Oh, oh yeah, people. Look, uh, this sermon is for Anderson because there are certainly moments in which we have the expectation that we step into a world and we're going to invest in all sorts of ways and it's just going to come back to us in uh, spades, right? And then we get there and it's kind of like, uh, whew, this does not live up to expectations. We, we think that we invest and we're going to get a return, we're going to get recognition, and we're going to have an even deeper sense of our reason for being. And instead, we get a rebuke, or we get ridicule, or we get rejected, and we think, really? I signed up for this? All of that effort. And we think, surely something should come of it. And so we create this little formula in our head without telling ourselves, initiative plus effort equals return, recognition, and all of that, and reason. And the, the point is, that kind of envy that we might have for somebody else in which it seems to be all clicking for them really can broaden into what is beneath all of that, a sense of entitlement. I did this, therefore, this should follow. And all of that, according to this parable, is a reflection of a misunderstanding. A misunderstanding of who it is for whom you labor, and how you're to think of that labor. It's a misunderstanding of who God is and what our labor is for him. When it comes to misunderstanding God, we again, we, we begin to think of him as a boss that we work for, and instead, you and I do not work for a boss if we're in him. We labor for a master who loves, who cares, who has something deeper for us than even necessarily a return on our investment, if you will. But when it comes to the nature of the labor, I think the overarching point and the meaning of the passage is this. Ready? Here it is. Get nothing else. Just get this. Our work for the Lord is far less like earning a wage from him and instead far more like expressing our worship to him. Our labor for him is far less like earning a wage from him. In fact, it's not even like that. But it is more like an act of worship to him. Why do I say that? From those three little questions that this master asks that disgruntled employee at the end of the day. He asks him there, there at the beginning of verse 13. He says, friend, I, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? In other words, did I change the terms of service mid-course? Did I make you a promise that I then did not keep? And the answer to that is no. When you pan out and say, well, how does that apply to a moment like this? Here's the question. Does God promise you a life without suffering? No. Does God promise you that for every investment there is a proportionate return? No. Does God promise to love you, be with you, and not forsake you? Yes. Does God promise that there is a steadfastness to him that we can only discover perhaps going through the valley of the shadow of death first? Does he promise that? Yes. 
And that's why we can't tie things together that weren't meant to be tied together. That's the first question he asks. The second question he asks is this, according to verse 14. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? It's my gig. It's my field. It's my terms. Do I not have the right to do my business as I please? Um, the answer to that is yes. One of my kids this week asked me a rather poetic question. Uh, they said, um, which are there more of, grains of sand on the earth or leaves on trees? I said, that's the makings of a poem, right? So I get on my calculator and I, no. Um, I say, I don't know. But, you know, sit with that question for just a second. The fact that there is anything the fact that there is anything that has life in it, the fact that there is even the possibility of trying things and failing at them and trying them again and maybe seeing a little fruit born of it, all of that should boggle us. I should be boggled by that. And therefore, this little blue dot, which seems to be surrounded by more space and nothing than we could ever fathom or calculate, do you really think that you can go to him and say, you know what, I deserve a little bit better. I should be able to come up with my own terms for how you run your gig. And God says, really? <laughs> no. But the third question is the most important one. Do you begrudge my generosity? Are you giving me the stink eye for being good to everybody? Because what that master had done, oh yeah, he, had paid, he, he was due to give a denarius to everybody that worked for him 12 hours, but he was also due a denarius to give everybody that worked for him even an hour. So he's out a lot. He could have gotten a lot less. He could have paid a lot less to those who worked less, but he chose to be generous. Friends, in that parable, this master was generous from the beginning of the invitation into service, from the promise he made to those who went into his service, and by keeping that promise when they were finished with their service, he was generous. It cost him. And he wasn't obliged to do a single thing. His field, his work, his payment. This is the challenge for us all. And you want to see that in broad relief? Let me just recycle back to what we said last week from a, a theologian named N.T. Wright. He says this, we can never put God in our debt, period. There's, there's nothing you can do where you can work so hard that God's got to go, go raid the, the cupboard and find a little few extra pennies to pay you off. He doesn't really need you, but he loves to employ you. And therefore, the heart that's on display here in the parable is somebody who feels like, I deserve better. This isn't fair. I need to get more from you. You owe that to me. And yet the real heart that Jesus is out to imply rather than display is the heart that says, man, isn't he generous? Rather than the guy that works at 6 a.m. coming and complaining that he should have been given more, the heart that really understands both the master for whom he works and the nature of that labor would be the one to say both to themselves and to the five o'clock dudes, isn't he generous? 
are we not just unworthy servants? How do we move from there? How do we move from the heart that's on display to the heart that Jesus is implying in the background? It's a lot harder than you might imagine. Henry Nouwen, in his commentary on this passage, he said this, How easily I forget how great a privilege it is to spend a full day with my brothers and sisters doing what I was asked to do by the one who loves me most. What prevents me from rejoicing in the landowner's generosity to others? Why am I not grateful for what I received and for what they received? The movement to be grateful rather than judgmental of others constitutes a profound conversion. So what will convert us? Dan Price operated on a different premise by which he paid his people all minimum wage of $70,000. And that premise was, business is more than my bottom line. Business is more than maximizing profits. In his own words, and in the characterization of others who studied his plan, he was operating from an idea that all of his workers had dignity, that they had a worth, and therefore his primary job was not to see how much work he could get from them, but how he could pour into them at the same time that he's asking something from them. And therefore, it was his desire to pay them a wage because he knew that somebody in Seattle could not live on 40000 And therefore, he sought to pay them a wage that would allow them to be freed from some of their concerns about whether they could ever make ends meet. He operated on a different premise. He operated on a concern for them more than the work he was trying to get from them. And what he was doing was cutting the string between two ideas that you and I bind together and we don't even have to be taught to do so. You and I take our labor and our worth and we tie them together and we say that those go together, that what we do and what we're owed, what we do and what we deserve, those are two things that we string together. And Dan Price comes and clips that string and says, no, no, your worth is not in your labor. You already have a worth, and I want to give unto you freely out of my own generosity so that you would know it. What in our minds would ever clip the string between our sense of our labor for him and what we think we're owed by God? The gospel. The gospel will. All sin, friends, is an expression of our desire to be independent of God, autonomy. Why they eat of the apple? Because I can do good and evil on my own. Thank you very much. I can live this life on my own. Thanks. Appreciate the initial investment. We're good. That's sin. That's autonomy. But it's also theft. Sin is always a defrauding of God of what of the glory that is due him. And therefore, if you've sinned, you're a thief. I have sinned, that makes me a thief. And therefore, if you have sinned, we are all thieves. And we are all like thieves, if you will, on a cross. And if you know that moment, when Jesus is dying on his cross, and there's a thief that's looking at him, you know what's true of that thief? He had no labor to which he could point. He had no reputation that he could hang his hat on. He had no sacrifices that he could say, will you reward me? He had nothing. And Jesus still says to him, today, You'll be with me in paradise. Why? For no other reason than that guy finally saw Jesus for who he was. A man dying an innocent death who had come in the name of the Lord. 
not for his labor, but for his understanding that had been given him. That's the gospel. And that's God's generosity to that thief. And you know what? Do we begrudge the Lord for our generosity? His generosity? Of course not. Because it's in his generosity that he answers our thievery with forgiveness. And he answers our will to be autonomous agents by saying, you belong to me. You will belong to me. I know you want to belong to yourself. I know you think you know better, but you don't. You'll belong to me, and I'll make sure you belong to me because I will send my son generously to do all that and die on your behalf. Because here's the thing. If you ever look at God and say, I want what I deserve. I want you to be just to me. If God were only just to me, I would have no share in him. But because he has been both just and merciful, I have a share in him. He was just unto his son by bringing to him what we deserved, but because he did that justice unto his son, he showed us mercy. And therefore in him we are forgiven, in him we belong, and in him we have an inheritance, which all comes down to this very simple idea. You do not labor in order to receive the welcome of God. You labor because you've already received that welcome by your faith in the one who is a storyteller and a savior. Which means we rightly push back at the slightest impulse of envy or resentment. Which means we don't look down on those who have showed up late to the game and yet still receive the same welcome. Which means in all things, we give thanks. Not only what comes to us, but what comes to others. Oh, we're going to need help. I'm going to need help. But I know someone who prays for us in that regard. And for that we give him thanks. Amen.